Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 56. This show is entitled Curses, Four Tales of Sinister Forces. But to begin the podcast this week we have an article from the dailymail.co.uk website. An article by Rob War. It was a craft that did not come from this planet. A CIA agent speaks out on the 65th anniversary of the Roswell UFO landings. A long-serving CIA agent has spoken out on the 65th anniversary of the Roswell incident to reveal a hidden CIA file on the UFO that was supposedly found at the site and says... It really happened. Conspiracy theorists believe that alien bodies from the crashed disc were autopsied and that modern technologies have been built on discoveries from inside the craft. Chase Brandon, an agent who served 35 years with the agency, said that the information is concealed in a hidden vault within the agency's Langley headquarters. It was in a vaulted area. There was one box that really caught my eye. It had one word on it, Roswell. I rummaged inside it, put the box on the shelf and said, my God, it really happened. It was not a weather balloon. It was what people first reported, says Chase Brandon, a CIA agent who served for 35 years with the agency. It was a craft that did not come from this planet. Brandon spoke out on the 65th anniversary of the Roswell incident and claims to have seen direct evidence of the alien visitation in a high-security area of the CIA's Langley headquarters. For 35 years, Brandon served in the agency's elite clandestine service 
as an undercover covert operations officer carrying out foreign assignments involving international terrorism, counterinsurgency, global narcotics trafficking and weapons smuggling. When the Roswell incident occurred, military authorities issued a press release which began, The many rumours regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence officer of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc. Yet, just 24 hours later, the military changed their story and claimed the object they'd first thought was a flying disc was a weather balloon that had crashed on a nearby ranch. Amazingly, the media and the public accepted the explanation without question. Now, agents such as Brandon are once again calling into question the official line in the incident. Brandon is the author of several books. He says he will not reveal exactly what lay within the box that erased his doubts about the Roswell incident. Some written material and some photographs, that's all I will ever say to anybody about the contents of that box, he told the Huffington Post. But it absolutely, for me, was the single validating moment that everything I had believed and knew that so many other people believed had happened truly was what occurred. Earlier publicly released documents appear to back up Brandon's story, or at least the idea that American authorities covered up involvement with aliens. One memo that appears to prove the New Mexico incident prior to 1950 has been published by the FBI. The Bureau has made thousands of files available in a new online resource called The Vault. Among them is a memo to the director from Guy Hottle, the special agent in charge of the Washington field office in 1950. In the memo, whose subject line is Flying Sources, Agent Hottle reveals that an Air Force investigator had stated that three so-called flying sources had been recovered in New Mexico. The investigator gave the information to a special agent, he said. The FBI has censored both the agent and the investigator's identity. Agent Hottle went on to write, They were described as being circular in shape with raised centres, approximately 50 feet in diameter. Each one was occupied by three bodies of human shape, but only three feet tall, he stated. The bodies were dressed in a metallic cloth of very fine texture, each body was bandaged in a manner similar to the blackout suits used by speed flyers and test pilots. While the controversial notion that the United Kingdom might actually be the home of living, breathing, flesh-and-blood mermaids will inevitably and quite justifiably be greeted by many with the rolling of eyes and loud hoots of derision, it is an undeniable and astonishing fact that such beliefs persisted for centuries. 
from the www.mania.com website, an article by Nick Redfern. Lair of the Beasts. British Mermaids. And particularly in those parts of the English county of Staffordshire, where the many and varied traditions and superstitions of times long past can still be found lurking. That belief actually and incredibly quietly continues and even thrives. The word mermaid is derived from a combination of mer, the Old English word for sea, and maid, a woman of course. According to old seafaring legends, mermaids would often deliberately sing to sailors and try to enchant them, with the secret and malevolent intent of distracting them from their work and causing their ships to run disastrously aground. Other ancient tales tell of mermaids inadvertently squeezing the last breaths out of drowning men while attempting to rescue them. They are also said to particularly enjoy taking humans to their underwater lairs. In Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, for example, it is said that mermaids often forget that humans cannot breathe underwater while other legends suggest the sinister she-creatures deliberately drown men out of sheer venomous spite, no less. The fabled sirens of Greek mythology are sometimes portrayed in later folklore as being mermaid-like in nature and appearance. In fact, some languages use the same word for both bird and fish creatures, such as the Maltese word sirena. Other related types of mythical or legendary creatures include water nymphs and selkies, animals that can allegedly transform themselves from seals into human beings, and vice versa too. The village of Thorncliffe near Leek on the Staffordshire moorlands of England has a very memorable tale attached to it of a mermaid that can supposedly be seen at the witching hour at the appropriately named Mermaid's Pool. For those who may be unacquainted with the moorlands, they are typified by forests, lakes, rolling hills and crags, and have the distinction of being the home of Flash, the highest village in the British Isles, which stands at 1,518 feet above sea level. But back to the tale of the mermaid of that mysterious pool. Those that get too close to the seemingly beautiful, flirty creature as she tantalisingly and teasingly combs her long and flowing locks under a starry moonlit sky are destined to be dragged into the waters of the pool by what is in reality a malevolent and utterly deadly she-devil of a creature. Tellers of the tale quietly whisper. Reputedly, the legend dates back to around the 10th century, when a young girl, who so the story goes, may have been a witch and one who was very well practised in the world of the black arts, was pursued and persecuted by a local man, who duly threw the girl to her death in the waters of Mermaid's Pool. She in turn proceeded to scream absolute bloody vengeance upon her persecutor before she finally disappeared under the water and was duly drowned. And sure enough, the man's body was shortly thereafter found in Mermaid's Pool, his face violently torn to pieces as if by monstrous and vicious talons. Whether born out of some strange and unearthly reality 
or merely the stuff of legends. Mermaids and their attendant tales continue to provoke a wealth of controversy and fascination centuries after the captivating mystery began. And just in case you were beginning to believe in mermaids, the bbc.co.uk website is going to put a dampener on your beliefs. No evidence of mermaids, says the US government. There is no evidence that mermaids exist, a US government scientific agency has said. The National Ocean Service made the unusual declaration in response to public inquiries following a TV show on the mythical creatures. It is thought some viewers may have mistaken the program for a documentary. No evidence of aquatic humanoids has ever been found, the service wrote in an online post. The National Ocean Service, a division of the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Agency, posted an article last week on its educational website, Ocean Facts. Images and tales of mermaids, half-human, half-fish, appear in mythology and art from across the world and through history, from Homer's Odyssey to the oral lore of the Australian Aborigines, the service wrote. The article was written from publicly available sources because we don't have a mermaid science program, National Ocean Service spokeswoman Kelly Kavanagh told the BBC. She said that at least two people had written to the agency asking about the creatures. The inquiries followed May's broadcast of Mermaids, the body found on the Discovery Channel's Animal Planet Network. The program was a work of fiction, but its wink-and-nod format apparently led some viewers to believe it was a science education show, the Discovery Channel has acknowledged. From the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website, an article from their Past Imperfect collection. Pablo Fanca's Fair. Anyone who has ever listened to the Beatles' Sgt Pepper's Lonely Heart Club's band, and that's a few hundred million people at the last estimate, will know the swirling melody and appealingly nonsensical lyrics of Being For the Benefit of Mr Kite, one of the most unusual tracks on that most eclectic of albums. For the benefit of Mr Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. The Hendersons will all be there, later Pablo Frank is there, what a scene.
But who are these people, these horsemen and acrobats and Somerset Turners of a bygone age? Those who know a bit about the history of the circus in its mid-Victorian heyday, before the coming of the music halls and the cinema stole its audience, at a time when a travelling show could set up in a mid-sized town and play for two or three months without exhausting demand. We'll recognise that John Lennon got his vocabulary right when he wrote those lyrics. Garters are banners stretched between poles aloft held by two men. The trampoline in those days was simply a springboard and the summer sets Mr Henderson undertakes to throw on solid ground were somersaults. While true Beatlemaniacs will know that Mr Kite and his companions were real performers in a real troupe, however, few will realise that they were associates of what was probably the most successful and almost certainly the most beloved fair to tour Britain in the mid-Victorian period. And almost none will know that Pablo Fanka, the man who owned the circus, was more than simply an exceptional showman and perhaps the finest horseman of his day. He was also a black man making his way in an almost uniformly white society and doing it so successfully that he played to mostly capacity houses for the best part of 30 years. The song that lent Fanka his posthumous fame had its origins in a promotional film shot for Strawberry Fields Forever, another Lennon track, at Sevenoaks in Kent in January 1967. During a break in the filming, the Beatle wandered into a nearby antique shop, where his attention was caught by a gaudy Victorian playbill advertising a performance of Pablo Fanka's Circus Royale in the northern factory town of Rochdale in February 1843. One by one, in the gorgeously prolix style of the time, the poster ran through the wonders that would be on display. Among them, Mr Henderson, the celebrated Somerset thrower, wire dancer, vaulter, rider, etc. And Xanthus, well known to be one of the best broke horses in the world. Not to mention Mr Kite himself, pictured balancing on his head atop a pole while playing the trumpet. Something about the poster caught Lennon's fancy. Knowing his dry sense of humour, it was probably the Bill's breathless assertion that this show of shows would be positively the last night, but three, of the circus's engagement in the town. Anyway, he bought it and took it home, and the musicologist Ian MacDonald notes hung it in his music room, where, playing his piano, he sang phrases from it until he had a song. The upshot was a track unlike any other in the Beatles' canon, though it's fair to say that the finished article owes just as much to the group's producer, George Martin, who responded heroically to Lennon's demand for a fairground production wherein one could smell the sawdust. Adds MacDonald Riley, While not in the narrowest sense of a musical specification, this was by Lennon's standards a clear and reasonable request. He once asked Martin to make one of his songs sound like an orange. The Abbey Road production team used a harmonium and wobbly tapes of vintage Victorian calliopes to create the song's famously kaleidoscopic wash of sound. 
What the millions who listened to the track never knew was that Lennon's poster caught Pablo Fanca almost exactly midway through a 50-year career that brought with it some remarkable highs and astonishing lows. All of them made a little more exceptional by the unpromising circumstances of his birth. Parish records show that Fanker was born William Darby in 1796 and grew up in the English east coast port of Norwich, the son of a black father and a white mother. Nothing certain is known about Darby Senior. It has been suggested he was born in Africa and came to Norwich as a household servant, even though he may have been a freed slave, but that is merely speculation. And while most sources suggest that he and his wife died not long after their son's birth, at least one newspaper account has the father appearing in London with the son as late as the mid-1830s. Nor do we know exactly how young Darby, as he was known for the first 15 or 20 years of his circus career, came to be apprenticed to William Batty, the proprietor of a small travelling circus around 1810, or why he chose Pablo Fanca as his stage name. What we can say is that Fanca proved to be a prodigy. He picked up numerous acrobatic skills. He was billed at various stages of his career as an acrobat and tightrope walker, and became renowned as the best horse trainer of his day. The latter talent was most likely developed during a spell with Andrew Ducrow, one of the most prestigious names in the history of the circus and a man sometimes considered the greatest equestrian performer who has ever appeared before the public. By the mid-1830s, Fonka was not only noted as a daringly acrobatic master of the Corte de Volante, but also as a superb horseman, billed in the press as the loftiest jumper in England. His most remarkable feat, according to the circus historian George Spate, was leaping on horseback over a coach, placed lengthways with a pair of horses in the shafts and through a military drum at the same time. And during the 1840s, the Illustrated London News reported, by his own industry and talent, he got together as a fine a stud of horses and ponies as any in England at least one of which was purchased from Queen Victoria's stables. Funker was capable of turning out horses that danced along to well-known tunes, and it was said that the band has not to accommodate itself to the action of the horse, as in previous performances of this kind. John Turner, who has researched Funker's life more thoroughly than any other writer, says that he found little or no evidence that Fonka suffered racial discrimination during his long career. Contemporary newspapers mention his colour infrequently, and incidentally, and many paid warm tribute to his charity work, the Blackburn Standard wrote that, in a world not often noted for plain dealing, such is Mr Pablo Fonka's character for probity and respectability, that wherever he has been, once he can go again. I and receive the countenance and support of the wise and virtuous of all classes of society. After Fonka's death, the chaplain of the Showman's Guild remarked, In the great brotherhood of the equestrian world, there is no colour line, for although Pablo was of African extraction, he speedily made his way to the top of his profession. The camaraderie of the ring has but one test, 
ability. Yet while all this may be true, there's plenty of evidence in the late Victorian show business memoirs that Fonka was a well-respected member of an often disrespected profession. Racism was pervasive in the 19th century. William Wallet, one of the great clowns of the mid-Victorian age, a friend of Funkers who worked with him on several occasions, recalls in his memoirs that on one visit to Oxford, Pablo, a very expert angler, would usually catch as many fish as five or six of us within sight of him put together. And this Wallet adds, suggested a curious device to one irked Oxford student. One of the Oxonians, with more love for angling than skill, thought there must be something captivating in the complexion of Pablo. He resolved to try. One morning, going down to the river an hour or two earlier than usual, we were astonished to find the experimental philosophical angler with his face blacked after the most approved style of the Christie minstrels. Although Wallet does not say so, the gesture was a calculated insult, and it may also be significant that it took Fonka years to gather up the wherewithal to go into business for himself. He did not own his own circus until 1841, three decades into his career, and when he did finally leave Batty, it was just two horses and a motley assortment of acts, all of them provided by a single family, a clown, Mr. R. Hemmings and his dog Hector, together with Master H. Hemmings on the tightrope and Mr. E. Hemmings' feats of balancing. Still, Fonka's showmanship and a reputation for treating his acts well helped him to expand his troupe. We have already seen that he was joined by William Kite, the acrobat, and John Henderson, well known as a rider, wire walker and tumbler, in Rochdale in 1843. By the middle of the century, historian Brian Lewis notes, Fonka's circus had become a fixture in the north of England, so it seemed entirely natural for the schoolchildren of one mill town to celebrate a holiday with a tour of a bazaar, refreshments and a visit to Pablo Fonka's circus. The troupe grew to include a stable of 30 horses, clowns, a ringmaster, Mr Hulse, a band and even its own architect a Mr Arnold who was charged with erecting the wooden amphitheatres in which they generally performed. When the circus rolled into Lancashire town of Bolton in March 1846, Fonka himself announced its coming by driving through the main streets, twelve in hand, a spectacular feat of horsemanship that brought considerable publicity. There were many extended seasons in locations throughout England, Scotland and Ireland. At one point, the circus was based in its purpose-built auditorium in Manchester, capable of holding an audience of 3,000. One reason for Fonka's success that goes unremarked in the circus histories is his keen appreciation of the importance of advertising. Among the advantages that his circus enjoyed over its numerous rivals was that it enjoyed the services of Edward Sheldon, a pioneer in the art of bill posting, whose family would go on to build the biggest advertising business in Britain by 1900. Fonka seems to have been among the first to recognise Sheldon's genius, hiring him when he was just 17. Sheldon spent the next three years as Pablo's advance man, advertising the imminent arrival of the circus as it moved from town to town. 
Several other mentions of Fonka also testify to his talent for self-promotion. In Dublin in 1851, and perhaps not entirely inadvertently, another of his stunts prompted a virtual riot. The Musical World reported. The Dublin playgoers have nearly torn down a theatre because of a shockingly bad riddle. Pablo Fonca, the acrobat, advertised the gift of a pony and car to the propounder of the best riddle. There were 1,056 competitors, and the prize was awarded to Miss Emma Stanley for a conundrum so mediocre that we will not attempt to transcribe it. It is neither good enough nor bad enough for notice. The audience touched with a sense of national degradation that out of more than a thousand Irish, not one could make a better piece of wit broke into such excesses that a body of police had to be marched into the building to preserve it from wreck. The lineup of performers in Fonka's circus varied endlessly. At one point, Pablo travelled with Jem Mace, the celebrated bare-knuckle boxing champion, who put on exhibitions of fisticuffs, while towards the end of his career, he employed a Master General Tom Thumb, a play on Barnum's famous midget, and Elizabeth Sylvester, Britain's first female clown. He also exploited the provocative allure of Miss Emily Jane Wells, whose pleasing act of horsemanship was daringly performed in full bloomer costume. Later in life, Fonka switched to an entirely family-oriented show, recognising that it would appeal to a broader range of customers. Bringing in a more middle-class audience allowed Fonka to charge the then high price of a shilling for a box seat and sixpence for the pit. For most of these years, Fonka remained respected and esteemed, a fixture on the northern touring circuit, while attaining national prominence just once, when, in Bolton in May 1869, his decision to hire another female performer, Madame Caroline, billed as the female Blondin, in imitation of the world-famous tightrope walker and conqueror of the Niagara Falls, almost resulted in tragedy. As the wire dancer set off on a rope strung between two buildings in one of the busiest streets, the Penny Illustrated paper reported she stumbled, threw away the balance pole, but by a desperate effort grabbed the rope. She made strenuous efforts to regain her position, but although a strong, muscular woman, she was unable to do so and remained suspended in midair. Loud cries then arose from the crowd, Attempts were made to lower the rope, which was at a height of about 30 feet, but these were unsuccessful. Just as the woman was becoming exhausted, men's jackets were piled below her, and she was persuaded to drop into the arms of those beneath, sustaining no injury beyond the fright and a shake. Yet Pablo's life was not without its tragedies. The circus was a harsh mistress. While its memoirs are filled with gleeful accounts of triumphs interspersed with almost equally numerous descriptions of the chequered fortunes that saw the circus play to tiny crowds in bitter weather or lose out to the more compelling spectacles offered by competing shows. Members of the profession lived on the cusp of financial disaster. 
The Law Times of December 1859 contains the record of a successful action that Fonka brought against a bankrupt performer to whom he had lent a number of horses and theatrical accessories. While he was forced on at least one occasion to close down his circus and sell most of his horses, retaining just enough to preserve the nucleus. On another occasion, Fonka found his troops sold from under him when a creditor transferred his debts to his old master, William Batty, who, Wallet recorded, came down holding a bill of sale and in a most wanton and unfeeling manner sold up the whole concern. The lowest point of his career, however, came on March 18, 1848, when his circus was playing in Leeds. The troupe took over a wooden amphitheatre that had been erected for his rival, Charles Hengler, and used it to put on a benefit performance for Wallet. Partway through the show, when the pit was packed with an audience estimated at well over 600, some supports gave way and the floor collapsed, pitching the spectators down into the lower gallery used for selling tickets. Fonka's wife Susanna, the daughter of a Birmingham button maker, and mother to several children who also performed with the circus, was in the ticket booth and happened to be leaning forward when the structure, according to the annals and history of Leeds, fell with a tremendous crash, precipitating a great number of people into the gallery. Mrs Darby and Mrs Wallet were, were both knocked down by the falling timber. Two heavy planks fell upon the back part of the head and neck of Mrs Darby and killed her on the spot. Mrs. Wallet, besides and many others, received bruises and contusions, but the above was the only fatal accident. Fonka rushed to the scene, helped to move the heavy timbers and carried his wife in his arms to a nearby tavern. A surgeon was called for, but there was nothing to be done. A few days later, Susanna was interred at the Woodhouse Cemetery, where a monument records the melancholy event. At the inquest into her death, it emerged that the builder's men had partially dismantled the amphitheatre before Fonka had arrived, removing a number of the supporting beams, and the structure had been sold to him, as it stood, with the new owner undertaking to make any alterations as he liked at his own expense. Although Pablo still employed Arnold, the architect, nothing was apparently done to strengthen the flooring, but no charges were ever brought against either man for negligence. To make matters worse, it was discovered that as Mrs Darby lay dead amid the pandemonium, the box containing the evening's takings, amounting to more than £50, had been stolen. After his wife's death, Fonka married Elizabeth Corker of Sheffield, who was 20 years younger than he. They had several children, all of whom joined their circus, and one of whom, known professionally as Ted Pablo, once performed before Queen Victoria and lived into the 1930s. As for Fonka himself, he survived just long enough to witness the beginnings of the circus's terminal decline. He died aged 76 and in great poverty, in a rented room in a Stockport Inn. He was remembered fondly, though, a vast crowd aligned the route of his funeral procession in Leeds in May 1871, and he was buried alongside his first wife.
In Brownsville, as in many other places, they have a well-known road ghost legend. But this one might be the most unique road ghost story you have ever heard. You see, in Brownsville there is a fairly well-travelled farm road called Farm Road 511. And while it seems to be a perfectly normal road by the light of day, the locals warn of travelling it late at night, lest you encounter the road's ghostly inhabitants. From the www.weirdus.com website, The Ghost Cows of Farm Road 511, Brownsville. They say that as you drive down certain dark and desolate stretches of 511, your headlights may suddenly wash over a large cow standing right in the middle of the road, not six feet ahead of your bumper. That's right, a ghostly cow. You may swerve or pull off the road to avoid it, risking an accident, only to look back out at the road to see that nothing whatsoever is there. Some people have even gotten out of their cars and searched up and down the road only to find no sign of any cows or anything else, living or dead. So many ghost cow sightings and resulting car accidents have occurred on this road that the local newspaper and other media have reported on the story. It almost sounds kind of humorous until you realise that accidents have been caused so there is the potential for someone to get hurt or even killed in these inexplicable encounters. So, if you ever find yourself travelling down Brownsville Farm Road 511 in the dark of night, beware of the bovine spectres that are said to lurk just around the next dark curve in the road, waiting to claim their next victim. And in case you didn't know, that's from Weird Texas. And also from Texas, the Black Jesus. Oakwood Cemetery in Huntsville is famous for being the final resting place of legendary Texan general Sam Houston. It is also well known for a much less famous much darker legend, that of the so-called Black Jesus. Located at the very edge of the lush green cemetery sits a recessed wild wood erected by the Powell family in the 1920s after the tragic passing of their five-year-old son. It is a well-tended circular clearing with benches on either side and family graves at its centre, edged by gorgeous palms and shaded by the thick forest pressing against its back. This quiet nave is dominated by a hulking, black, deeply muscled, bearded statue that seems to watch you from every angle. This is the sculpture that the locals call Black Jesus. Originally, the Jesus with his hands turned palms up at his sides was a shining bronze. It wasn't long, though, before the figure weathered to be an inky black. According to local law, the dark colour could not be cleaned away, as if the statue itself was cloaked in a blackness of mourning. Adding to the mythology of the place, the graves inside this hushed area are laid out with the feet facing towards the west, while the rest of the graveyard's occupants have been laid out in a feet-facing east orientation. 
According to the legend of the Black Jesus, if you dare to visit the statue at night, you just might see the position of its hands altered, changed to an outstretched gesture, palm down instead of their usual palms up position. We didn't get to test this eerie theory as we visited during the day, but one thing that was weird about this statue was that the hands did seem to slightly change position from every single angle. And it also just had those kind of eyes that follow you wherever you go. We also found the verse on the right side of the base kind of strange and enigmatic. The whole clearing had a quiet, watchful vibe, even during the day. So we can only imagine how spooky the experience of encountering the black Jesus might have been in the deep dark of night. Are curses real, or are they just the stuff of superstition? You might have heard stories and legends of gypsy curses and witches' curses, but do they have a real supernatural power? A curse is an expression of or wish for misfortune, harm, evil or doom by a person for another. Curses are not taken seriously by most educated people in the Western world, yet they might retain their power and influence over those who believe in them. Belief could be the key to a curse's power. If a person believes, even on a subconscious or psychological level, that he or she has been cursed, then its effects can be just as powerful as if it is supernatural in nature. Consider the following reports of curses and their sometimes devastating effects and judge for yourself whether they are produced by dark, sinister, external forces or are brought about from the minds of those who have been cursed. From the theparanormal.about.com Curses Four Tales of Sinister Forces And it's by Stephen Wagner The Old Housemaid's Curse this first report comes from O.F. about a strange incident that happened to her grandparents, who in their retirement enjoyed travelling around the world. One trip took them to New Orleans, a city with a long tradition of witchcraft, voodoo and other assorted dark arts. On this occasion her grandparents were staying at a bed and breakfast that was once an old plantation. After a restful night, they awoke and were ready for an enjoyable breakfast. The housemaid and server who waited on them was an elderly black woman with a thick southern accent, 
says OF. She graciously served my grandfather his juice, coffee and toast, but when it came to my grandmother, she threw the juice in her lap and broke the tea kettle on the floor next to her. Furious over this inexplicable behaviour, the grandfather stood and demanded to know what the outburst was all about. The housemaid ignored him and glared at the perplexed grandmother and screamed a curse. God is going to get you, she shrieked, then threw down her apron and ran from the building. OF's grandparents complained to the management. The management promised to fire the woman, but claimed she could not be found. My grandparents got their entire stay there for free, she says. The owners were even called in who apologised exceedingly for their recent employees' horrible behaviour. Over the next few days, however, the old woman's curse seemed to have its effect on OF's poor, innocent grandmother. She tripped on the sidewalk and dislocated her shoulder. She lost her purse along with $300 cash, credit cards and ID. Their rental car stopped working for no apparent reason. The lights refused to stay lit in their bedroom and bathroom, while the rest of the hotel lights worked fine. She was haunted by horrible demonic nightmares the entire time she was there, and swore up and down that she had awoken several times during the night to find the maid standing over her, watching her. Finally, having enough, they cut the trip short and returned home. But many incidents of misfortune seemed to follow the old couple for an entire year after their New Orleans trip and the old housemaid's curse. The Gypsy's Curse Candace also suspects that her great-grandmother was the victim of a curse. This one proclaimed by an angry gypsy woman. Candace's great-grandparents were migrant workers who travelled from place to place seeking employment wherever they could find it. Much of their time, however, was spent in southern Texas, close to the Mexican border, where it was common to see gypsies travelling through, selling various items. One day a gypsy woman came to their house trying to sell some things, none of which Candace's great-grandmother needed. The gypsy woman was not so easily dismissed, however. She was very insistent and refused to even let the door to be closed on her. She said she knew there was money hidden in a jar in the house and that she wanted it. Her great-grandmother did indeed have such a jar, but did not know how the gypsy woman would know that. My great-grandmother wasn't intimidated and basically pushed her out of the way and yelled some various offences to run her off, Candace says. But the gypsy woman was not so easily intimidated either. They exchanged words and the gypsy woman cursed her, saying that she was going to die soon by choking on her tongue. Less than a year later, Candace's great-grandmother had a heart attack and had, in fact, choked on her tongue. Curse of the Witch of the Woods Justin believes he has been haunted by the curse of a witch, yet he isn't sure how much of his encounter is real and how much is a product of his young imagination. At about nine years old, when this all began, 
He was the member of a Cub Scout troop that was winter camping in the woods of northern Massachusetts. Naturally, the older boy scouts enjoyed scaring the younger scouts with spooky tales. One of which was about an old witch who lived and died in those very woods. In fact, her cabin still stood nearby. They even set off in the snow-covered woods to find the cabin. Of course, imaginations running wild, we were all both excited and filled with fear, remembers Justin. The woods can make a lot of strange noises that could have been just a small animal, fallen trees and branches settling or breaking in the wind. Then Justin says he saw something unusual. I looked outward through the gnarled branches in the distance and had to squint my eyes and try and focus because I kept thinking I was seeing something, he says. Then I realised what I was looking at and could feel it watching me as if its stare pierced me with knives. It was horrible. What I saw looked to be an old woman, but she looked like she was part of the woodlands, like part tree. Her face was a tannish brown and her hair was mixed with silver, grey and white, looking more like twigs, like those small birch twigs wrapped in white bark. The eyes I could never see well. They were always dark, maybe hollow. Her mouth was unnoticeable as I stared frozen. I kept seeing it move fast like some mad beast romping through the woods around its prey. The witch that Justin saw was surely just an illusion. Yet he soon began to experience her curse for the intrusion on her property. Justin turned and fell face first onto the ice, severely cutting his bottom lip with his teeth, requiring stitches at the nearest hospital. The curse did not end there, however, and returned in full force when Justin was 19 years old. The Witch of the Woods haunted Justin's dreams. Dreams that were startlingly vivid and terrifying. And in each successive dream, she appeared ever closer to him. When I felt her presence, it felt like so much hate and rage, Justin says. I don't know if just towards me or simply in general, but I have never felt such hate in my life and such fear and dread of something as I did her. The dreams or visions of her continued on and off, vexing Justin for nearly two years before they finally subsided, for a while. When Justin turned 23, they returned. Everything about her was the same, he says. I was at a point in my life of being retrospective and observant of things around me in my past. So I began to realise last time I saw her, a string of bad luck ensued on me. In these past few years since the last dream, where she is even closer than in all the others, my wife and I have been in constant misery, economically, mentally, physically, as if our physical and mental beings are deteriorating. And it hits us one thing after another, or on top of the other, Inside it has become like despair, like something inside of me eating away at me, trying to break my will and my spirit. The witch constantly haunts me in my mind now. Whether it is something in my imagination putting a face on something I'm unaware of, or it truly is some sort of curse, I don't know.
Black Magic Curse Backfires. This final tale of a curse happened to a family in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in 1929. The baby of the family was mysteriously afflicted with a dangerously high fever, and no matter what they did, nobody could bring it down. One night there was a knock at the door and in stepped a stranger who told the family that there had been a curse placed on the baby by someone else in the family who was very jealous of the child. He said he could bring the fever down and break the curse, but if he did so, the witch who cast the curse would die. The family hardly believed his story and didn't know anyone who was a practicing witch, but they were desperate, so they let the man in to try. The strange man prayed over the baby all night and seemed to go into some sort of a trance at stages. The next morning the baby was healthy and the curse had been broken. The overjoyed family thanked the man and he departed, leaving them with the chilling words. Now someone else in your family is dead. The family had no idea who this man was and never saw him again. But they were so relieved that the baby wasn't sick anymore that the aunt went round to all the family's relatives to relay the good news. To her horror, however, when she entered her mother and father's home, the stepsister of the baby with the fever was hanging by a rope from the chandelier. She was the only one in the family that died, so the family assumed that she was the witch who cast the spell. It was then learned that this stepsister was very jealous of the new baby. She had been used to being an only child for years and years as the older ones had grown and moved away, and when the new baby arrived she began to seclude herself in her room. Her mother came forward and revealed that she thought her daughter was practicing black magic. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website and the bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. Now to bring the podcast to a close, another story from the paranormal.about.com website. The Terrifying Amherst Poltergeist. And it's also written by Stephen Wagner. For months it tormented a 19-year-old girl and her family with deafening noises, horrifying threats and unspeakable violence in one of the most famous poltergeist cases in Canadian history. Some ghost stories live on because of the sheer terror they brought into the lives of those who experienced them firsthand. For the most part, ghosts and apparitions are harmless to those who witness them, flickering briefly into view to perform some timeless task or to relay a message to a loved one, and then fading back into the unknown. 
Poltergeist activity, however, is another matter entirely. Seeming to centre around an individual, a poltergeist produces physical phenomena that have been known to cause serious harm and otherwise scare the daylights out of its victims. Esther Cox of Amherst, Nova Scotia, was such a victim in a case that became one of the most frightening poltergeist accounts in Canadian history. The strange events were witnessed and documented by many people, and even became the subject of a book. The year was 1878, and the place was Princess Street in Amherst, a town in north-central Nova Scotia, where the province borders New Brunswick. Esther Cox, 19 years old, lived in a small rented house with her married sister, Olive Teed, her husband, Daniel Teed, and their two young children. The crowded little cottage was also home to Esther's siblings, Jenny and William, as well as Daniel's brother, John. Suddenly, into the tedium of this ordinary home, horror struck, but not from some paranormal force, rather from an all-too-human monster. Esther was nearly raped by an acquaintance named Bob McNeil, a shoemaker with a disdainful reputation of which Esther had been unaware. Although she escaped the attack with minor injuries, the violence against her seemed somehow to open a door to further attacks, this time from an unseen entity or entities, and the Amherst poltergeist mystery began. Although the house was crowded with the Teeds and their extended family, it wasn't unusual for households to take in boarders to help them pay the rent. Walter Hubble, a sometime actor, was a boarder at the Teed residence when the first stirrings of supernatural phenomena took place, and he recorded them in this book, The Great Amherst Mystery. One night, Screams of fright brought all of the adults of the house rushing to the room where sisters Esther and Jenny shared a bed. The girls had seen the formation of something moving under their covers as they were about to go to sleep for the night. Esther thought it was a mouse. A search turned up nothing. The girls returned to bed and the house quieted for the night. The following night more screams disturbed the family. Esther and Jenny excitedly claimed that they had heard strange noises coming from a box of fabric scraps that was kept under the bed. When they brought out the box to the centre of the room, it leapt into the air of its own accord and landed on its side. No sooner had the girls nervously righted the box when it jumped into the air again, eliciting the screams from the young women. Up to this point, the events could have been attributed to the active imaginations of the two girls, especially given Esther's recent harrowing experience at the hands of Bob McNeil. But the third night would provide experience to all in the Teed House that something far out of the ordinary was happening with Esther Cox. That night, Esther excused herself to bed early, complaining that she felt feverish. At about 10pm, soon after Jenny joined her in bed, Esther jumped up from the bed to the centre of the room, tearing at her nightclothes and screaming, My God, what is happening to me? I'm dying! Jenny lit a lamp and looked at her sister, horrified to see that her skin was bright red 
and seemed to be swelling unnaturally. Olive rushed into the room and assisted Jenny in getting her sister back into bed as she now seemed to be choking and struggling to breathe. The other adults watched in disbelief as Esther's entire body, which was remarkably hot to the touch, swelled and reddened. Esther's eyes bulged and she cried in pain, fearing she was literally going to burst through her stretched skin. Then from beneath Esther's bed came a deafening bang, like a clap of thunder that shook the room. Three more loud reports exploded from under the bed, after which Esther's swelling subsided and she fell into a deep, deep sleep. Four nights later, these terrifying events repeated themselves. Esther's unexplained swelling and torture ended only by the thunderous noises from under the bed. At a loss to cope with this unearthly ordeal, Daniel asked a local doctor, Dr. Karite, to examine Esther. And he was witness to some of the most frightening events of all. Attending at Esther's bedside, he watched in astonishment as her pillow moved beneath her head, untouched by any hands. He heard the loud bangs from beneath the bed and could find no cause for them. He saw her bedclothes thrown across the room by unseen hands. Then the doctor heard a scratching noise like a metal tool scraping into plaster. Dr. Karite looked to the wall above Esther's bed and saw letters nearly a foot high etching themselves into the wall. When it was done, it had spelled out, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill. A jagged clump of plaster then tore off the wall, flew across the room and landed at the doctor's feet. After two hours, the house fell quiet. Dr. Karite, out of courage, compassion or curiosity, returned the next day and bore witness to more unexplained manifestations. Potatoes hurled themselves across rooms. The deafening noises now seemed to be coming from the roof of the house, yet when the doctor investigated, there was no apparent cause. Of these events, years later he would write to a colleague. Honestly, sceptical persons were on all occasions soon convinced that there was no fraud or deception in the case. Were I to publish the case in medical journals as you suggest, I doubt if it would be believed by physicians generally. I am certain I could not have believed such apparent miracles had I not witnessed them. The doctor could, of course, do nothing to help Esther or settle the disturbances at the teed home. The haunting continued and in fact became more destructive and threatening. Unexplained fires erupted around the house. Knives and forks were thrown by some entity, sticking violently into woodwork. Lit matches materialised out of thin air and dropped onto beds. Furniture moved by itself, flipping over or slamming into walls. Loud slaps were heard, followed by the appearance of red finger marks on Esther's face. Sewing pins appeared from nowhere and were jabbed into Esther's face. A pocket knife was ripped from the hand of a neighbourhood boy and stabbed into Esther's back. Poor, tormented Esther tried several times to escape the devilish entity, but it followed her wherever she went. One Sunday Esther attended a Baptist church service and sat in one of the rear pews. Once the service had begun, knockings and rappings echoed throughout the church 
seeming to come from the front of the church. The noises grew louder and louder, drowning out the minister's sermon. Knowing she was the cause, Esther left the building and the noises stopped. She even tried to spare her family from the malevolent haunting. At first she moved to a neighbour's house, but the poltergeist followed and she was forced to return home. The Teed's landlord, fearing the destructive nature of the phenomenon, wanted to evict the family. Again taking responsibility for the events, Esther moved herself out instead, finding work at a nearby farm. When the farm's barn burned to the ground, however, the farmer had Esther arrested for arson, for which she was convicted to a four-month sentence. Fortunately, Esther served only one month in jail and was released. The short sentence may have at first seemed like a low point to the much-troubled Esther, but it did have an upside. After she was freed from jail, the poltergeist activity seemed to just fade away. There were minor instances for a short time, and then the haunting stopped completely. Esther later married twice and died in 1912 at the age of 53. Walter Hubble published his book, The Great Amherst Mystery, after her death, and it included an affidavit signed by 16 witnesses of the horrific events at Amherst. brings to a close episode 56 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's show and to bring everything to a nice conclusion, a lovely piece of music called Eurydice and it's by H. And if you're not quite sure who Eurydice is, in Greek mythology she was an oak nymph or one of the daughters of Apollo. She was the wife of Orpheus who tried to bring her back from the dead with his enchanting music. So until next time, everyone, bye for now.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.